0: It is so delightful to see all of you and to be here this morning. I'm so thrilled to be here and to be the one who introduces our phenomenal keynote speaker this morning. We are in for a treat. Are you ready? Yes. All right. So I could read Dr. Towns' bio and literally we could spend the whole day relishing in her phenomenal accomplishments in the academy. And she literally looked at me and was like, "Mm, we're not going to do that. But I do want to highlight a a number of phenomenal things that she has done throughout the career, because I think many of us are here because of you, because you have paved the way, because you've been a trailblazer. So I'll just say a a few short things, a few things, and I won't be long, and then we're going to hear Dr. Towns, and that's who we're really here for. Uh, Dr. Towns is an American Baptist clergywoman. She's from North Carolina, from the Durham area. And she earned her doctorate of ministry from the University of Chicago Divinity School, as well as a PhD in religion and society and personality from Northwestern University. That alone deserves applause. But it gets better. Dr. Towns, or I should say Reverend Dr. Dean Towns, is the dean and carpenter professor of womanist ethics and society at Vanderbilt University Divinity School becoming the first African American to serve as the Dean of the Divinity School in 2013. She is the former Andrew Mellon Professor of African American Religion and Theology at Yale University Divinity School. And in the fall of 2005, another first, she was the first African American woman elected to the presidential line of the American Academy of Religion. In addition, she was the first woman and the first African American to serve as a Dean of Academic Affairs at Yale Divinity School, where she was the Carolyn Williams Beard Professor of, or I'm sorry, she was the Carolyn William Beard Professor of Christian Ethics at Union and a Professor of Social Ethics at St. Paul School of Theology. She has written a number of books, towering, uh, groundbreaking books, including Womanist Ethics and the Cultural Production of Evil. She has been the editor-in-chief of a number of essays. And she co-edited, most recently, Womanist Theological Reader*, Womanist Theological Ethics, a reader done with the late Katie Geneva Cannon and Angela Sims. She continues her research on women and health in the African diaspora in, the Bra- in Brazil and the United States and she was elected in 2009 as a fellow in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She just ended a four-year term as president of the Society for the Study of Black Religion. And before I take my seat, I'll just say on a personal note, Dr. Towns is a towering figure to all of us, but to me personally, she was one of the people who encouraged me and motivated me to stay the path when I was pursuing my PhD at Columbia University. And then ultimately, I did my postdoc here at Princeton Seminary, and it was because of trailblazers like her who inspired me. So, everyone, please join me in welcoming our keynote speaker for this morning, Dr. Emily Towns. Good
1: morning. Good morning. It is a delight to be here. Um, I usually don't let my faculty and staff and student body know where I am when I'm not there, but they somehow found out and um, they thought it would be okay that I come and join you for this conference. And I was glad they thought it was okay because I knew it was okay. So it's good when things line up that way The title of my talk is Embodied Leadership. Embodied Leadership. What helps folks know how, and more importantly, what to look for in living? What brings the past into the present, and the present into the future, so that we remember we are a people in time and of time. And nothing we do puts us outside of time. And this is important because we can never get away from the history that has brought us all here, even if we do not know it. Because it is dangerous to be in a position where we cannot remember what we never knew. And then go on to repeat well-worn atrocities and failed strategies instead of building on the past while remaining mindful that building on the past is different, very different, from succumbing to romanticized, colonized, ghettoized appeals to the past that keep keep us from stretching into a tangibly better future. This morning, I want to engage the conference theme, Leadership in a Time of Division and Fear, because I think it is a bold move to try to talk about leadership with all that has been going on in this country, in our churches, our religious bodies, and ourselves. Leadership, that notion that we must try to remember the preciousness of life and living and the ways that we live in the aura of grace as embodied people who have within us the holy and the erotic as God's grace holds us into creation. For me, this remembering involves wisdom and not only the wisdom I learned from the old black folk who helped raise me, but also, what I've learned from literature. As some of you may have heard me say before, throughout my life, I've always learned a great deal from writers and poets. I speak primarily of those who do not deal with dense theoethical discourse and reflection, but writers like Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, Tina McElroy Anza. Alice Walker, William Faulkner, Ernest Hemingway, Anne Rand, Carson McCullers, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Jorge Amado, Chinua Chebe, Nikki Giovanni, Robert Frost, Sonia Sanchez, Nikki Finney, Thomas Glove, Elizabeth Alexander, and the list goes on. You'll notice a slight southern bit. Their ability to turn the world at a tilt, just so, to explore our humanity and inhumanity challenges me in ways that theories and concepts simply don't. As a child, I was transported to Troy by Homer and devoured all I could about Greek and Roman mythology. The idea of God seemed quite novel to one who was growing up on Jesus loves me, this I know. Apollo and Athena took me out of my daily musings on Jesse Helms and fire hoses and white folks spit. I could enter through Homer's prompting, a different time and place where I learned that maybe the holy could be capricious and not always stern. So let's begin this journey this morning by appealing to Toni Morrison's image of the dancing mind. For Morrison, she says, there is a certain kind of peace that is not merely the absence of war. It is larger than that. The peace I'm thinking of is not at the mercy of history's rule, nor is it a passive surrender to the status quo. The peace I am thinking of is the dance of an open mind when it engages another equally open one, an activity that occurs most naturally, most often, in the reading, writing world we live in. Now, Morrison's essay, and specifically her image of the dancing mind, I think is instructive for us when turning to leadership and how I think that it can be manifest in the holy and the erotic. I'm fairly sure that there are not many leadership studies out there that appeal to the holy and the erotic, (laughs) but that is precisely my point. We too often appeal to reason and dispassion as tools for helping us develop our leadership skills. If we look around, we can see that this might not be quite as effective as we would like. So I thought it might be more interesting, if not helpful, to start from another foundation that I think may be more organic, more faith-filled, more paradigm-shifting, and simply more alive. So I land on the holy and the erotic as our guides to talk about the power of leadership, both its upsides and its downsides. I turn to Morrison to begin our time because regardless of where we sit and in how many places, it is in the dancing mind that many of us meet each other more often than not. It is in books and essays and lectures and sermons and papers that we often meet for the first, if not the only time and way. It is this dancing mind where we tease through the possibilities and the realities, the hopes, the dreams, the nightmares, the terrors, the critique, the analysis, the plea, the witness that is done in the academy, in the classroom, in the religious gatherings of our various communities, in those quiet and not so quiet times in which we try to reflect on the ways in which we know and see and feel and do. As we take in this dancing mind to think about leadership, we should do so as deeply embodied people rather than halting disembodied ones. Now this is crucial for me because black bodies are a seething presence in U.S. society. We are found in the U.S. literary canon represented by writers such as Stowe, Hemingway, Cather, Poe, Twain. We are found on television and other media forms as thieves, murderers, dangerous and foreboding, waiting to lash out with indiscriminate anger with a normalized violence. That herds our society's travesties onto the skins of all darker peoples. Pathologized, fetishized, demonized, we are the hypersexualized other folk build legends around our imagined sexual prowess. Lascivious hips, alluring breasts, big and bigger penises that we know how to use better than others or better than most because we are a hot, black, hot people and we are only looking for the next lay, the next conquest, the next victim. We disrupt these things from time to time with those deemed exceptional or special or at one time, presidential. This disruption cheers some and threatens others. We are a society riven with fear and division about many things. And black bodies join other darker skin bodies. And we are the only one element of this chaos we find ourselves in. For black bodies are illustrative of the other ring that goes on in the U.S whether it be race, class, gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, geographic origin, age, and on and on. And there is much groaning in this land with a disproportionate moaning coming from queer and non-queer folk yearning for justice unemployment, education, health and healthcare, HIV AIDS, environmental racism, climate justice, poverty, lynching, suspect drug laws and sentencing guidelines, prosperity gospel, tea parties, border walls to the south, hashtag me too. Yes, there is much groaning in the land that forms the matrix of the cultural production of evil that has become the fabric of life in the US and beyond. If you are too dark-skinned, too lesbian, or gay, or bi, or trans, or straight, cis, or non-gender conforming, or pan, or poly, or asexual, or queer, or more, too inquisitive about suffering, too outraged at the demonic Watusi that we seem far too happy to keep the rhythm to in our lives and in the lives of others. And if we are not careful, we will develop a haute couture of venom and despair that may feel like a faithful response to evil, but is really only driving nails into the coffin of bitterness and brine that is far, far away from the new heaven and new earth that should be the vision that drives us to live a life of joy that fills our lives with work, with vibrant possibilities rather than stultifying realities. So given the cartel of evil we deal with today, I focus on a disruptive something as a window into this cultural production of evil and perhaps one way to eradicate it, leadership that is grounded on the holy and the erotic. You see, my bias is that it's not very helpful to try to put the holy and the erotic in opposition to one another. The conjunction and marks the joining of these two things that I think of as natural dance partners with each other the holy expresses both radical transcendence and radical eminence in coming to know the power of the divine in our lives. It reminds us that we are held in the grand design of God's mercy and grace and rocked with a love that will not let us go. The erotic expresses the passionate engagement we must have with life as disciples of the holy, the divine. It reminds us that we are to live life fully engaged with the world around us, its rhythms, its hopes, its disappointments, its promises. And it sometimes calls us to be downright ornery in working for the new heaven and new earth which for me is another way to say justice and another way to accept God's embodied grace in life and living as the foundations for us to think about leadership. You see, I'm bone and annoyed at the way black folk continue to be pathologized, fetishized, hypersexualized, demonized, and the fact that we are now getting used to doing it to ourselves. And to make matters worse, religious institutions like churches and seminaries are often of little help in calling us into account on this. We tend to issue far too many Satan sin tickets for all folk across the color, racial, gender, sexual orientation, ability, age, and more spectrum who fail to abide by a constricting theology that practices a mind, body, apartheid as God's will or who fail to abide by a status quo that tells us that excellence means that we must live lives that hide the joy of the holy in all its manifestations, including that which is the erotic fire that drives and fuels our drive to justice-making and spirit-filling. Friends, we can't practice leadership that leads folk to justice and spirit, if we have no passion, have no fire, have no vision. And those of us who participate in various stripes of religious institutions are often far too quiet in our dissent as a rule, preferring oftentimes to create enclaves of holiness, to wait for a time that is ripe for change. And frankly, that change rarely comes So we are caught waiting for Godot. Our theologies fail us, and we fail them when it comes to sex, sexuality, and sexual orientation, some of the common markers of the erotic and the holy. We create a bad infinity of stereotypes and rationalizations about others and ourselves. When we embrace a passionate ministry that respects people's boundaries, but encourages uh, encourages us all to push towards our limits. Because as feminist ethicist Bev Harrison used to remind us, we always stop too far back from our limits. We rarely live our lives up to our limits where creativity is a strategy and not just something we turn to when we have exhausted our reason and rational selves, when we know the center while living on the edge. So I try to recognize that the dominant theoethical discourse I was taught is often not a very usable theological resource to combat the gaps, silences, omissions, ignorance, fear, celebration, joy, ecstasy, that is a part of all of our dramas of deeply embodied leadership. Because what we do not know, what we cannot comprehend, What we cling to as truth and knowledge is often based on a withering ontological panic that morphs into terror, and it is a pasteboard of this terror that carries the broad strokes of bombast hatred and sanctimonious pomposity. (laughs) We must refuse in our life and work to accept this not so theological, not so ethical, not so spiritual stance that asks us and tells us and demands of us that we view our bodies and spirits as separate and antagonistic and unequal. So, I try to live out my everyday commitment to refuse my complex body in acceptable but basically demonic stereotypes of what and who a black lesbian raised in the South from a normal dysfunctional family who was middle class and highly educated, who attended the Protestant church on the regular until it became rele- irrelevant for a teenager who had large questions about the nature of the union- universe, coming to understand her sexuality and sexual orientation identity, who played sports, played in the band, went to school in the Midwest, has lost both her parents, loves her baby, baby sister dearly cherishes laurel like my breath works in an ivy league worked in an ivy league institution much to my surprise and now guides a liberal southern seminary to my even greater surprise <laughs> and tries not to forget all those things and people who brought me to this time and place through their love and anger at a society that marked my black lesbian body as female and as disposable. Do your first works over as well. Hence, let's refuse to perform a heteronormative drag show that encourages others to do so in their lives we must resist accepting minstrelsy as rigorous leadership or engaging in comic skits of learning or variety acts of buffoonish ideas or music and dancing that obscures the breathing heart of deep engagement or researching, teaching, advising, preaching, or writing in inept caricatures that bear little resemblance to thoughtful or wise reflection or faithfulness. (laughs) faithfulness. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Instead, I advocate an integrative move that rep- represents the complexity of our bodies in a complex social, cultural, and political thing. A space that and place for joining mind, body, and spirit in a joyous dance of grace-filled embodiment that prevents us from becoming stranded in the castles of our skin. Many of us in this room and throughout the whole of the church and society and academy have been told to live in split, if not fractured, bodies, to deny the gift that God gives us mind, body, and soul, to treat our bodies as suspect, almost illegal, and worse, illicit. And sometimes you and I have been told this is holy. We must refuse to rip ourselves apart or invite colleagues and students and co-religionists to perform this wicked shake dance. Just because people who think we are a sea of wanton black or brown or beige or white hot mess of sexuality are threatening to not sit next to us in a scholarly pew or a suspect pulpit that is little more than a postmodern auction block. We must look for spaces faithfully, authentically, methodologically, spiritually, and theologically to understand that the holy and the erotic are mercy tools for us to employ in leadership. They help us uncover who we are as thinking and feeling human beings who are being called to live face forward into the whirlwinds of our time. So with a liberative hard edged moral framework, it is possible to call abnormative theology and religious stances into question and challenge our churches to live the love we proclaim and the grace we need, the hope that sustains, the spirit that encourages, the justice that is the new heaven and New Earth, because the complexity of creation and the roles we play in it are not as easily codified as much of traditional, homophobic, heterosexist, unconscious, cisgendered, immoral theory portrays. Turning to such a framework is one step that helps us step out of this hegemonic endgame and into embodied leadership. For it provides us with a series of windows into our individual and communal memory as people of faith that can then help us challenge our assumptions and perhaps even our values as they are placed into a wider playing field with the assumptions and values of others. In short, I am arguing that we do our first works over rather than live and practice a scholarship or witness that specializes in being the doo-wop pom-pom squad for the cultural production of evil. And it is easy to fuel this fire with the inept theologies we live about the holy and the erotic. We must do the work our souls must have, our intellects must have to stop a fantastic hegemonic imagination that has all kinds of queer folk performing physically and intellectually impossible sex acts that not even Sir du Soleil could do. <laughs> we imagine an imagination that circumscribes love and loving into the domains of folk who think like us, worship like us, look like us, That is then placed within an evil matrix of ableism, racism, sexism, classism, militarism, ageism, xenophobia, and more. And then has the nerve to say that this is orthodoxy. When it really is little more than performance anxiety gone wild. This is the discipleship and scholarship of death and destruction that is so terrified of the complexity of existence that it shapes answers before even hearing the questions. It crafts reading lists that look like the high side of misery. (laughs) It sanctions curricula that believe it's a good thing to segregate the mind, body, and spirit It rolls over and plays dead when faced with disasters, natural and human-made. It tries to respond to life and living, but spends too much time primping in front of funhouse mirrors and asks, don't I look good? (laughs) So my challenge each and every day is to try to refuse to be part of the division and fear that seems to be running rampant most days and instead be about the business of practicing embodied leadership that is not terrified of the curve of our hips, the arch of our backs, the slow swing in our walks, the glide of our fingers, the fire in our eyes, the coil of our hair, the deep moans and shouts of our ecstasies, the bottomless welling cries of our sorrows, the slow bend of our smiles, the precision of our minds, the sass of our talk, not terrified of our bodies that carry our past, our present, our future perfectly and imperfectly. And as the old black women who used who raised me, used to say about such things. "Mm, mm, mm." (laughs) Well, too much of what we do in the academy and in our religious homes seems like we have drunk the Kool-Aid of abstraction and rationalism as its first and last moral and theological move. What we need is more courage in our various leadership styles because God talk has become unimaginative, boring, and scared of its own shadow. And this makes it and us dangerous because rather than challenge and prod the dailiness of the ways we practice, study, dehumanization, and shy away from life-giving dynamic of the holy and the erotic, we often reify our flight by rubber stamping timidity in the face of systematic evil, such as heterosexism, or ageism, or ableism, or ethnocentrism, as holy rather than blatant false witnesses. It is vital that we allow courage rather than fear or timidity to hold us as we craft the leadership styles we need in an environment that often refuses to recognize, value, and respect the various forms of embodiment we live in. We need to be more than disembodied talking heads that often rehearse a tradition of religious sterility. We do not need more scholars and scholarships, preachers and sermons, activists and strategies that behave as if the world is a giant object lesson and a playground for us to test our ideas as if we all are like protozoa. Allowing courage to guide us in the work we do as people seeking to live fully into embodied leadership helps us measure life by the possibilities rather than our terrors. Courage is part of the way we come to know God's way in our lives with an ever ripening richness so that we do not succumb to fear and the status quo. Because we are not called to be the poster children for the status quo. But rather, we see division and fear as something we work through and with. For fear can be a good and healthy marker for us that something is amiss. And we do need to proceed with caution. Fear is a natural mark of our humanity and courage, also a natural mark helps us accept the fullness of our humanity as we realize that we cannot do this work alone. And any theological notion that suppresses fear and mocks courage, any doctrinal move that feels that the questioning, the dancing mind is a threat to God is most likely a pitiful wasteland that consecrates blindness as faithfulness timidity as love, and arrogance as hope. So, according to Morrison, the dancing mind requires, as she says, an intimate sustained surrender to the company of my own mind as it touches another. And then she goes on to encourage us to offer the fruits of our imaginative intelligence to another without fear or anything more deadly than disdain. It is a move toward intellectually and spiritually dancing into a new future, a more robust, a more relevant church that is more vibrant, more life bringing and giving, more welcoming, more humane, more alive with possibilities that engage others and ourselves, and yes, a place and space of embodied leadership as we live our lives in the holy dance of spinning out erotic creation, ultimately. It is a place and space of deep joy. So rather than looking for happy, I am looking for joy these days. Joy helps me see that a more robust, happy helps me see that a more robust future is possible. Joy gives me the fire and insight to refuse to give up on making that future real. Happy gives me a lens into the hope for the world. Joy pulls me, gooses me into not settling for far too little in my life and witness. Joy helps all of us stretch into the ministry and scholarship that God calls all of us to, to celebrate the spiritual gifts we've been given, to walk around in them, to sit down and play with the holy sand God has given us. Joy refuses to let us live our lives in the past tense. Joy dares us to live a deep spirit and spirituality. Joy dares us to live justice. Joy takes us out of the folds of the old wounds that make all of us perform unnatural acts like any of the isms. Joy means creating communities that are bodies of hope and righteousness that spit in the face of the cultural production of evil, even if it's not ladylike to do so. (laughs) A community made up of folks like Miss Rosie across the street, Miss Montez round the corner, Cousin Willamay down by the juke house, Mister Press over at the barber shop, Miss Gear who ran a beauty parlor out of her home, Miss Emma Sneed Lee who taught generations of children to read, do plus ones, and not kill themselves on the jungle gym, Mister Butler who taught generations of children to love math and science through rhymes and counting games, and then took you fishing on Saturday mornings and didn't care if you didn't catch a thing. Joy that takes life, like, and turns it into love. Takes care and turns it into passion. Takes concern and turns it into commitment, joy. It's what gets God up doing a standing ovation in creation because regardless of how tough it gets some days, I am encouraged to live my work with others, with joy that comes from an embrace of the holy and the erotic and to remind myself that I want to be a very old black woman when I die because dying of old age is the ultimate holy and erotic womanist move.
0: Thank you.